0: You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. We're in a sermon series, actually, and we've been going through uh, this thing called Spiritual Conversations. And all these sermons sort of work together, so this is sort of your first time here if you're kind of coming in and out from time to time. uh, Let me just encourage you, uh, these sermons all build together, and so it might be an idea to go back and listen to our podcast or check out some things on the website. Uh, We also have folks uh, in community groups who've been going through a curriculum we wrote uh, to really help you have more spiritual conversations and to help those conversations to be more fruitful, uh, because that's just something we want to be as uh, people who follow Jesus. Uh, the church is not an event we attend on Sunday mornings. It's a community of people on a mission uh, to bring people closer to Jesus. And we are absolutely committed to that as people. So, uh, would you turn with me in a Bible? We're going to be in Acts 9 today. We're talking about evangelism as a team sports. And yes, that is cheesy. And yes, I don't care. Acts chapter 9, uh, we're going to be at verse uh, 10. Acts nine 10. You're going to need a Bible if you got one. A phone works. A tablet works. Uh, I figure an electronic tablet, not something made of clay. All right, Acts 9, starting at verse 10. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight to the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument whom I've chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hmm. Track and field is not a team sport. And I see mild consternation on some of your faces because you ran on track and field teams. And so let me just say, I'm not saying it wasn't a sport. It's not a team sport. It's not a team in the same way that, say, basketball or football are team sports, right? Where people come together playing different roles to accomplish a goal. Track and field is a bunch of individuals running individual events, and you get points for that, and that's, you know, it's like a team, but it's not the same thing. Right? There's no such thing as um, tandem pole vaulting. Right? People don't do three-legged hurdles. There is no piggyback long jump. Right? These, aren't, these aren't events that happen in track and field. It's a great thing. It's a sport, no doubt, but it's not really a team sport. With one real exception. Right? There's uh, the 4x1, or the 4x4, four four, the, the relay. Right? And now this is a really interesting kind of team sport, because really, you're running an individual event as best you can, and then you stop, but the race continues. And then someone else who didn't start the race is just sort of waiting with expectation, not knowing when the race is going to start for them, but knowing they're going to need to run like the wind, the instant the baton touches their hand, and then after they hand off, another person runs, and then somebody closes out the race. And the person who closes out the race isn't the person who finishes, but they get to win, which is a really interesting kind of team sport. There's somebody who can be really important to the race who never finishes it, somebody who doesn't begin or end it, who's essential, really, and someone who wins the race who builds on the work of others. Evangelism is a team sport like the relay. And that's incredibly important if you're going to be good at evangelism. Incredibly important to understand. I have been in parachurch ministries and in really intense youth groups along the years who would really talk about the very end of the race as though that's all that evangelism is. Just crossing the finish line. That's all that matters. And there's often a real unawareness of how God has been moving in someone's story or other people who maybe were involved in the relay up to that point. It misunderstands evangelism and often does a bad job at it. Likewise, I've been involved in organizations where people are so offended by that kind of evangelism, by the idea of it as a sales pitch, that they just say, you know what, the thing is, like, we just have to sort of be you know, kind of like aimlessly involved. We don't have to run in a particular direction. We don't have to worry about crossing the finish line. We just sort of run with people, a race toward something. And that doesn't really work either because spiritual conversations that are always directionless will never bring people closer to Jesus. At some level, somewhere along the way, we have to be people who say, look, I'm going to be really patient with the person that I'm with. I have no idea how God's operating in their story. And yet committed to the idea that if people come to know Jesus, it really does change lives. What we see in this story is Saul involved in a weird little relay. A weird little relay. And Saul is uh, like the worst case scenario for a spiritual conversation. Uh, the worst case scenario for an evangelism. He's exactly the kind of person that you're afraid to meet. But like to the extreme, right? He's extremely well educated on why Christianity is nonsense. He is a terrible person who also thinks he's a great person. And he is willing to murder you if you disagree with him. Right? Exactly the kind of, like, people who will tear you down on social media, but he would actually kill you. He has already killed people in this story. It has already, there was an evangelist named Stephen who was trying to explain Christianity, and he made sure that guy died. He has shown up in this story ready to kill people. Ananias, who is afraid is afraid for a reason. He knows why Saul has come to town, and it's to kill Christians. The beginning of this kind of chapter we find out that Saul is breathing threats and murder against the Christians. And is kind of there, in fact, to bind people up to hand them over to the chief priests. And all of a sudden, Jesus knocks him off a horse. Just knocks him right off a horse, and Saul is blind by the side of the road, and he hears a voice from God in this blinding experience say very clearly, "'You're an idiot.'" What are you doing? And he goes, who are you? Jesus, stop trying to kill me. They already did that. I came back from the dead. You're on the wrong side. (laughs) And that's the end of the experience. And he's just now alone and blind by the side of the road, thinking about his life and his choices. And we realize that Jesus is ultimately the one who starts the relay. God is always the one. God is always the one who initiates in our story. And we've talked about this a little bit in the course of this series, that God is always the first mover, that God is always the one. And this is true like historically and theologically, like Jesus died on a cross for you long before you ever knew him, long before you were ever born, actually. But it's true that God is always on the move in people's stories. So when we start talking about having spiritual conversations with people, the idea that you're beginning the relay is extremely misleading. So if you're talking to people at a coffee shop, like there's this barista and you've got kind of like a fun relationship and you've been chatting here and there and you're thinking, "Mm, this just, it feels like at some point I'm going to do the awkward thing and start talking about something that maybe she doesn't really want. I'm going to ask some questions and maybe she doesn't want to talk about it. And you don't know actually that behind the scenes, she's been having really weird dreams. And she's been looking for someone to talk to about this stuff. You don't realize that the coworker you've been thinking of inviting over for dinner actually has been looking at his life and thinking, this is kind of a mess, and like, I really, like, I think I'm just lonely and I don't really know what to do with this. You don't realize that the person in your dorm or the person in your apartment complex is somebody who actually has, has really been wondering if life has meaning or value or like whether there's anything beyond death and they're just, they were really hoping that maybe somebody would come along and talk to them. That is a real thing that I have experienced more than once in beginning a spiritual conversation where I think I'm starting something and they've never had any conversations about Jesus only to discover they've actually had lots of time to think about it and they've kind of been wondering if anybody else wanted to talk about this stuff. You don't begin the relay. Jesus begins the relay. You may discover that people in your life who you suddenly take this risk to start talking to actually have had a lot of experiences where God has been on the move in their lives. Jesus is the one who starts the race. He also, by the way, is the coach, which is not really fair. It's cheating. And that's just how it works in this particular relay. Jesus is also the person who decides to tag in particular people for their particular slots in the race. And so the person he hands the baton off to, I think it's Ananias, because that's the name we heard who was talking to Jesus, but actually it's a guy named Judas. If you go back to the story, verse 10, 11, 12, you'll suddenly see that right when Ananias is talking to Jesus in this prayer, all of a sudden we hear there's a guy named Judas who Saul is with. Saul's at his house. and We don't hear anything else about Judas. We just know that Saul is there. That's the only role he plays in this entire story. Just a Christian that Saul doesn't kill. Which is nice, right? Like, that's, that, that's a good role to have. Stephen didn't have that role. That's, that's a good role to, to be in. But, like, it, it doesn't seem really significant in its way, right? He's just sort of in his house. But we can be pretty confident that, that he's probably a Christian. Judas, by the way, I know is a name of a villain in the Gospels. That's not the same Judas. It's a very common name in the first century. Judas is one of the twelve tribes. This is a different Judas. But he's staying at his house, and he's probably staying at his house because again, Saul is from Jerusalem heading to Damascus. He doesn't necessarily know anybody in town. And good Jews probably wouldn't want him to stay in their house. Because he's clearly under the judgment of God. And ironically, the problem of being a Pharisee is that other Pharisees aren't going to want you around if you've suddenly been stricken blind. So the only people that Saul is likely to find bringing him into their house? Christians. Judas is somebody who when Ananias comes in and starts talking in the name of Jesus, is not offended and doesn't report him to the authorities. He probably believes in Jesus, but his only role in this story is to let a guy into his house who a couple of days ago would have killed him, his children, and his wife. So again, it doesn't seem like that big a deal, but that's actually a very big deal. That's a huge role to play in someone's story. Just being a Christian that they're willing to be around. Uh, There's a couple of guys who wrote a book called I Once Was Lost, and I want to show you something that they came up with. Basically, they, they they were talking to a bunch of people who'd come to know Jesus over the years, and they noticed a pattern. A pattern in what it was like for them to come to know Jesus. And the more people they talked to, the more they started to notice that this pattern really seems to hold up. It's not true for everybody, but it tends to be true when you're talking to people about Jesus. And it's a really helpful thing, because when you're talking to people who don't yet know Jesus, to figure out where they are in the relay and kind of what section you're running will help you to be more effective at it. So the first step really is going from not knowing or trusting Christians to knowing and trusting at least one. That is the beginning of most people's story in coming to know Jesus, which kind of makes sense. And it's a really tricky thing. It's the role Judas plays in this story. And it's a hard thing to do in people's lives, to be the good news, to be willing to talk about the good news, but just to be the good news, to be somebody who at the office is strangely different from other people just because, you know, whatever. Somebody in a class who's different from other people or, you know, around... The folks in your neighborhood, in a way that they go, man, there's something about you that I just, and you're a Christian, and there's, I've heard that all Christians are bigots, but you're not, and I don't understand that. I've heard all Christians are Republicans, and you're not, and I don't understand. I've heard that all Christians are, I, I... but I'd, I'd like to know a little bit more about Jesus. I'd like to know a little bit more about why you are the kind of Christian that you are. I'd like to know a little. I'm curious to hear more about you, or I'm curious to hear more about your faith, or I'm curious to hear more about the Bible because you're not like the kind of people I think all Christians are like but you're still clearly someone who believes in Jesus. Really important, don't confuse this with this. It will be a very frustrating experience if you get curiosity and seeking confused. Uh, these people will come to you and say, "I'd really like to come to church with you." And you'll go, "Yes." They want to be Christians. No. No, actually they don't. They just they kind of want to go to church with you, they want to hear a little bit more. They're curious. What do you think the meaning of life is? Yes, they really want to be Christians. No, actually, they just, they really want to know what you think the meaning of life is. They just, they want to know a little bit more about you. They're just curious. Slow down just a little bit and be patient. This thing can take a really long time in people's lives. Likewise, this thing can take a really long time in people's lives. If there are people who don't trust Christians and your move is, hey, do you want to be a Christian? No, I don't like those people. I certainly don't want to be one of them. Some of these steps take time, and you never know where people come from. It's good to ask a lot of questions, even as they ask questions. But the thing that separates curiosity from seeking is an openness to change. Uh, the Bible would call that repentance. Right? But a willingness to change, and there's any number of reasons it might happen. It could be that suddenly they have a really weird dream, and it bothers them, and they want to think about it, and they want to talk about it with somebody. could be they have a kid, and they're looking at somebody, and they go, this is miraculous. Like, I didn't think that that was a thing, but there's like... Biology doesn't do enough to explain what this is to me, and I don't know what to do with this. And I, I know I have to raise you to be a person, and I don't know how to do that, and I have a lot of questions. Does any would anyone be able to answer my questions? You may find that some people just dive into some of those big philosophy questions, those fundamentally human questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? What makes a person a person? Is life worth living? Why? Is there something beyond death? What is it? What makes life life? What makes death death? Those questions, throughout time, have led people to have very spiritual conversations. But they they stop things being kind of abstract, and like, I'd like to learn more about what people think. They they start to become questions about, why would this be true for me? Why why should I be a Christian? Very different thing. What do Christians believe? Why Why should I maybe follow Jesus? And one of the weird things that you can do is you help people kind of figure out where they're at and where you're at in the course of walking along with them. It sounds like you're not really open to change right now really open to change, but I'm kind of curious. It sounds like you're kind of curious. I am kind of curious. It sounds like you've started trusting Christians for the first time. It sounds like you'd like to follow Jesus. Yeah. It sounds like you're really dealing with a lot of change in your life. How's that going? To walk with people in this way, to learn to to run the section of the race that you're in, to know that maybe you'll only get a couple of pieces, to maybe actually that somebody else was the trustworthy Christian and you pick people up when they're suddenly open to change. gives you respect, actually, for what that trust probably costs. To be the person who builds trust with people and hope that people later will respect that when they suddenly come across them and and they're seeking Jesus. But what does it really look like for me to start following Jesus? What would it really look like for you to start following Jesus? What do you need to hear about Jesus? Should we maybe start reading a book together? Do you want to start like hanging out with someone and, and talking through some of your questions? What would that look like? Because ultimately we hope that people will start following Jesus. We want people to know Jesus because we know Jesus. And we know what it was like when we were over here. And we want to invite people to come with us in this great, crazy relay. Now, I will tell you that there have been people in my life who I built trust with slowly and steadily over time. It took a year or two, and then they moved. And you're like, what, like, what was the point of that? Like, I only got the beginning, of and it was so hard. It took so much time and effort, inviting people over and being gracious and listening as they tell you why Christians are the worst people in the world and going, but you still like me, so okay, Like, let's keep processing through this stuff. And then they go somewhere else and you go, God, I really hope you do something with that. Sometimes you meet people and you know they're in this weird season where they're very, very curious about Jesus. And you answer a lot of questions and then they stop talking to you. And you don't know if it's because they're offended or like if they... If something changed, you just don't know. And sometimes we begin to wonder, like, well, all I did was the beginning and I didn't really get to the end of this whole following Jesus thing. Like, was that a waste? Did I was I was I having was that evangelism? Like, I don't even know. This is one of the reasons we're talking about this as spiritual conversations, because evangelism is a little broader than we sometimes think of it. It's not just the end of the relay, it's the whole thing. And God has a way of using the work that you've done in ways that will surprise you. Sometimes our role is to plant seeds in someone's life. And we don't get to water them. And then somebody comes along and waters them, and somebody else gets to see growth. And somebody else gets to see, like, this big plant, and then somebody else gets fruit. And you know that, like, that fruit, like, that came from your seed, like, you were involved in that. But you're not necessarily around for it. Paul, by the way, talks about this. Paul, who, in our story, is still Saul. The experience of leading people to Jesus, but knowing that you're working with other people and... You're only really united by this thing, the gospel. You're only really united by this idea of spiritual conversations. The question is, can we be patient enough and trust that God is actually working in people's stories? That Ultimately, that we aren't the most important part of the story. In fact, we're just a part of a team. And the hope is that when somebody gets the end of their spiritual autobiography, that we're a part of it. That we played some very meaningful role where we could come alongside people for the season they were in and love them really, really well in the name of Jesus. Because you know what happens when you start following Jesus is there's a whole brand new relay. Some of you have come to Christ in our church in the last year, which is really exciting. Some of you online are still trying to figure out whether or not you believe in Jesus, and that's great. But the weird thing is when you start following Jesus, suddenly you start becoming this disciple. Who has to get better and better and better at following Jesus. Who wants to learn more and more of what it means to be transformed inside and out. This isn't the end of the story. It's the beginning. It's a really exciting thing. So Judas, right, does what he can to just be somebody that Saul can trust. You can blank that out. And all of a sudden, Ananias gets tagged in for the relay. This guy who's praying and talking to Jesus. And sometimes when you pray and talk to Jesus, Jesus talks back. And we all go, that would be really cool. Like that's, sometimes he tells you to do stuff you don't want to do. And uh, that's Ananias' experience. And so we don't know how often or how regular an experience this is. But I can tell you, the more you talk to Jesus, the more you will find that Jesus talks back. And sometimes that happens in profound, supernatural ways for people. And sometimes it's the, kind of this gentle, weird tug when Jesus sort of pushes and prods and pokes you. But Ananias is praying, and all of a sudden, God starts talking back. And God says, Ananias. And Ananias goes, I said Jesus. Oh, that's cool. Like, So this is, all right, I was, I'm here. I was, here I am, Lord. This is like one of those things that you hear about in the Bible with Samuel. And this is super cool. All right, so you're going to use me. I'm going to be like in the, yeah, I want you to go talk to a murderer down the street. Ooh, okay, hang on. <clears throat> all right, Jesus, I just, I feel like I'm having like a weird, that's probably not prayer. So like that probably wasn't you. Let me just, I was kind of hoping for like, what? What? No, like it's. <laughs> He already probably knows that Saul's on his way to Damascus. He's already probably afraid because Saul is on his way to a Damascus. It's exactly the kind of thing you and I would be praying about. Oh, Lord, keep me safe. Keep my family safe. There's this murderer coming to town looking for Christians. Help me to figure out how to be a faithful witness, but to kind of fly under the radar. And Jesus says, No, no, no. You're not flying under the radar. Very much in the radar. I want him to meet you. <laughs> that terrible person who you hate, here's his address. He's on straight street. I'm straightening him out. He's with a guy named Judas, but it's not that guy's job to talk about Jesus. It's your job. And you're going to go talk to him. Lord, I've heard a lot about this guy. I really don't think you want me to like... There will not be more Christians at the end of today. There will be fewer Christians. That's what's going to (laughs) happen. Well, he's blind. He needs to see. It sounds like a great thing that he's blind, God. It'll make it harder to find the Christians. Why, Why would we give that guy his sight back? If there's a blind bear, don't go into the room and give the bear his sight back. That's a bad idea. And Jesus says, look, I've already told him that you're coming. Like, he's praying right now. I've told him there's a guy named Ananias who's going to come lay hands on You told him I was coming? Like, I haven't even said yes yet. Like, that's... What? It's an unbelievable conversation that Jesus has with Ananias. I've already told... He's praying right now, and I've told him you're on your way. I haven't... Lord, like, we... Ah. And Ananias suddenly feels all of the fear that many of us feel when it comes to talking to people about Jesus. In fact, to the extreme. Because again, there is no situation you've ever been in with evangelism that is ever as high stakes as this one. It has never happened. You just think, I'm going to be embarrassed. That is true. You could be embarrassed. Absolutely, He could die. I, God, they might really not like me. Yep. God, I might not know the answers. Yep. God, I might lose a friend at the end of the day. Yeah, maybe. But if you really like them and if they really like you, you probably won't lose the friend. Some of those fears that we have are actually over the top. And most likely being used in kind of a spiritual warfare sense. Some of those fears we have, it might be accurate. Sometimes there's a risk in talking about the gospel. And we talk about this, by the way, in our community groups and some of the witness stuff. So obviously there's more conversation going on. We've talked about some of this stuff throughout the series. So I'm not going to spend too much time on it. But all I can tell you is if you're willing to take a risk, if you're willing to take a risk, you might see somebody come to know Jesus. So you might lose your dignity for a day, but you may see someone whose life completely changes. You may see someone who is saved, who goes from lost to found, all because you're willing to be awkward for like five minutes. And as we've talked about, it's probably not going to be that awkward, and they maybe even are waiting to have that conversation. Is this weird thing, right? If, if you're waiting right, with your hand behind you in a relay, you genuinely expect at some point someone's going to put something in your hand, and the race will begin for you. Ananias, who is praying, in a weird way is, well, God, what do you want me to do? And the problem with that is your hand is behind you, and all of a sudden Jesus puts something in it, and you go, oh, oh now this is, this is the thing. And I was waiting with expectation, believing that God was calling me into something. That's a good way to deal with spiritual conversations, to believe that maybe at any moment God might hand you somebody who might suddenly be in a particular place with faith. And that you might be called to move the ball down the field just a little bit more. I remember, uh, this is a weird story. So there was a day that I was coming out of work uh, and uh, was, had been praying uh, that God would use me. And uh, that was a mistake. I Had been praying that God would use mm-hmm. me. And as I walked out of work, uh, I, I round the corner and I'm heading toward my car. And there's a guy in the parking lot. And I hear God say very clearly, go tell that guy he's like Abraham. And I literally, I'm walking, and I just go tell that guy he's like Abraham. What? Was that... That that was that's that's a weird thought that like, would Jesus, was that you? Yes. Go tell that guy's like Abraham. I don't know that guy. No, I don't (laughs) want to do that. No, this is super weird. And I like and it's the kind of thing sometimes you feel like God pushes you. That's an unusual experience for me, by the way. But for some people, that's a really regular experience. Sometimes it's just sort of this like you need to go talk to this person. And that's about as much information as you get. And you feel like a tug. And you know if you, if you do it, you're doing what God wants you to do. And if you don't do it, you're being disobedient. And it's this weird struggle where like part of you goes, go. And the other part of you is like, no, I don't want to go. And so I'm shuffling my feet, heading toward the guy in the parking lot. And I'm really hoping he drives away. That's the whole plan. It's that like, I will be able to talk to Jesus later and be like, look, man, you should have kept him in the parking lot. And so I'm shuffling along. And all of a sudden, there's a guy who yells at him across the like, parking lot. And I go, Yes go away. And the guy yells at him across the parking lot, and they chat a little bit, and I'm moving as slowly as I can, and the friend of his walks away, and he opens his car door, and I'm thinking, I'm almost home free, and then he stops, and he just sort of stands between his car and his door. And I think, this has been so long. How have you not left yet? I'm really taking my time. And I'm getting a little bit closer, and the guy looks at me and smiles and says, hey man, how's it going? And I go, (laughs) Look, uh, this is going to seem super weird. Um, I'm a Christian, and uh, I'm really like I was praying, and I give like a five-minute disclaimer because I'm a weirdo, and I know I'm a weirdo, and this is just going to be weird. And um, listen, anyway, I just think... uh, God wants you to know that you're like Abraham, you know, the guy, the guy in the Bible who go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. Like, I think that you're like that guy, like I will bless you and, and you'll be a blessing. And he, the, the dude looks at me like I'm an alien <laughs> and then bursts into tears. And I go, what? and he goes, you have no idea. And he's like choking through the tears. You have no idea what that means to me. I have no idea what that means to you. I I don't. I really don't know what that means to you. And we chat for like a couple of minutes, and I talk about how much Jesus loves him, and that I really am a stranger, and that I know nothing about him. And that's the end of that interaction. That's it. I never see that guy again. And I never met him before. So I don't know where we were at in that relay, but I promise you, God used that. 100% God used that in his life. And I don't know the background, and I don't know what comes next, but I am certain that because I was willing to look like a huge weirdo, that guy knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a God who loves him. A God who loves him. Now, we've been talking about you praying for three people. By the way, if this is the first time you're hearing about it, we've been talking about you praying for three people. Today would be a good day. Write down three names. Some of you I know have been praying for three people every day. Three people that you know that they might come to know Jesus. You're just praying for them, and who knows what God's going to do. But I'll tell you this, if you are praying for those people every day, there is a decent chance that God may call you to do something that will feel really weird to you. And it'll happen while you're praying the exact same way it happens to Ananias. And all I'll tell you is I hope you're obedient when it happens because you might see God do something amazing. If you are willing to take a risk to deal with some of those fears about, well, if I talk about Jesus, I'll be one of those people, except that you're not one of those people. If you're willing to take a risk, you might actually see God do something amazing. Ananias goes to the address God told him in a prayer. I know this is in the Bible, so you don't think of it as like, well, that's amazing. No, he goes to the address, and it turns out that Saul is there. And when he goes in the door, it turns out the house is owned by Judas, who, you know, has had Saul in town. And Saul is actually blind, and everything that God told him in a prayer is real and Ananias walks up to this guy, and he puts his hands on him, and he says, Brother Saul, Jesus loves you, wants you to have your sight back, and God's Spirit wants to rest on you in powerful new ways. Don't tell me the gospel isn't the most amazing thing you've ever heard of. This guy would have killed me a couple of days ago. This guy is my enemy in every sense of the word. And he calls him Brother Saul? unbelievable. If you and I looked at the world in which we live with all of these people who are our enemies, absolutely our enemies, and we saw those people not as enemies, but as potential brothers and sisters in Christ, oh my God, what he could do. What he could do. Oh my God, what he could do. It would be unbelievable if we started looking at progressives and conservatives, liberals, republicans, the maskers, the anti-maskers, the Q and honors, the whatevers—not as people who are weird, not as people we don't like, not as the kind of people who would, you know, probably be really angry at us if we started talking to them about Jesus—but as the kind of people who are just about to become brothers and sisters in Christ, about to join this community of people on a mission for Jesus Christ. Saul gets his sight back. Miracle. Saul, the murderer, becomes a Christian. A much bigger miracle. A much, it is amazing that a blind man could suddenly see at the end of a prayer. It is amazing that a guy in prayer heard. It is much more amazing that a guy who is fundamentally opposed to Christianity becomes a Christian that day. Unbelievable. And then, the baton moves. All of a sudden, there's a group of disciples who Saul spends time with. An amount of time, we don't know how long, but a while. In other letters we hear more things about how long it was, a couple of years maybe. Suddenly Saul gets handed off. So it's not just about Ananias, this hero evangelist. Suddenly it's about this group of believers. Ananias, no longer a part of the story. Suddenly there's this community of people where you can experience sacraments like baptism. This community of people where you can experience sacraments like communion. Suddenly there's this community of people with old folks who you can learn a little bit about what it's like to be a Christian for 60, 70 years. To raise kids, to raise grandkids in the faith. Where there are little people, tiny little kids, running around who say, Jesus loves me, this I know because the Bible tells me so. And in our cynical, critical world, you go, huh, faith is actually that simple. It would be good if I had faith like this five-year-old kid. I've learned about faith from my five-year-old kid. I'm really glad I served in kidsmen. It's actually a really important thing that Vanessa is about to do. Really important thing that we can join her in. One of the most important ministries we've got. We can learn from junior high kids and teenagers who we have in this church about what it's like to face persecution. I promise you this, there is no more difficult thing than being a 13-year-old boy or girl in junior high and actually believing in Jesus. No more difficult thing in the world do we live in. Naked persecution will come at you. In other places, people will be polite, but not in junior high and in high school. We will learn, actually, what it's like. We will learn what it's like to be people who follow Jesus from a community of people who follow Jesus. And will realize, actually... That sometimes we'll have friends who will bring people to a church and we'll go, well, how do we love you in the name of Jesus? And know that they may or may not actually be people who follow Jesus. Some of you have done this. Some of you are people who realize, I've been invited here by people who actually want me to know Jesus. And that's actually okay. We love you. We're glad you're here. Whether you know Jesus or not, we're really glad that you're here. Because we're all a part of this weird relay. And suddenly we find that actually God isn't calling us to be the next Billy Graham, but just to love the people in front of us. Billy Graham is a name that you may or may not know. Uh, some of you don't know, he is maybe the most recognizable evangelist for the last hundred years. He did rough estimates uh, through TV and the internet and other things like that. He preached to 285 million people in his lifetime. He led to Jesus about 3.2 million people in his lifetime. Which is crazy math, but also if you notice, not the best ratio you've ever heard in your life. (laughs) No, no matter how many millions, like that's actually, like, there's a, and he would say, like, not everybody comes to know Jesus, and we still talk about Jesus on a regular basis. One of the sermons he preached, this is true, was translated into 48 languages simultaneously and was broadcast to 185 countries. Unbelievable. In a time before things like mass broadcasts, he preached every day for two weeks at Madison Square Garden, and two million people made it. Two million people heard him preach. Unbelievable. Billy Graham has led a lot of people to Jesus. When we talk about evangelism, some of us go, well that is evangelism. I don't know how to do that. But you've got to remember that somebody led Billy Graham to Christ. Just like the same way that somebody led you to Christ. And even if your progression doesn't feel like that because maybe you grew up in the church, the truth is you grew up around Christians you trusted. You grew up in an environment where it was easy to talk about your curiosity and your questions. You grew up in a situation where the instant you were open to change, some people were around you ready to talk to you about what it meant to follow Jesus. Just because you trust your parents doesn't mean that your parents can't lead you to Jesus. Just because you trust your grandparents doesn't mean your grandparents can't lead you to Jesus. But actually your grandparents were led to Christ by other people who were led to Christ by other people who were led to Christ by other people. And this stretches down to Latin America and up to Canada and out to Africa and Asia and across to Europe. And this goes back to the Middle Ages. This goes back to the Roman Empire. This goes back to a couple of guys and a couple of girls who knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they told people and people came to know Jesus. And this team grew. Evangelism is a team sport. We're always in this relay. The thing about Billy Graham... There was a guy named Billy Sunday who started some evangelist revival meetings. And some people came. And another guy came to know Christ and said, well that, okay, I can do that. And he started some evangelist revival meetings. And that guy led a guy named Albert McGuckin to Christ, who was a 24-year-old farmer. And he lived in town near Billy Graham, whose parents had been trying to convince Billy Graham to go to church. And this 16-year-old kid said, no, I like you know, women, and I like drinking. And I don't want to be a Christian. That will get in the way of those things. <laughs> Accurate, by the way. It will get in the way of those things. He was not wrong. 16-year-old kid says, no, I'm not that interested. His parents were trying to get him to go, and this guy, Albert, tries to get him to go, and he just keeps saying no. And the 24-year-old is like, look, man, I, like, I'll tell you what. You can drive my truck. If you want to come you can drive my truck to the meeting. And the 16-year-old kid said, that sounds great. So he drives the guy's truck to the meeting, because that's really the thing that got him to go. They pack it a whole bunch of other farmers and neighbors, and they show up to the meeting, the guy talks about Jesus, and he goes home, and he starts thinking about it. And he comes back the next night, and hears more about Jesus, and he goes home. And he comes back the next night. Every night there's an altar call. Every night somebody's talking about Jesus. Every night the gospel happens. And sure enough, sometimes it takes a few times. Sometimes you're involved in a relay. Meanwhile, he's processing with his parents. He's processing with some friends. He's talking to one of the people outside the meeting who's handing him a card and saying, this is what it would look like to give your life to Christ. And then eventually Billy, Billy Graham comes to Christ. 1934. That guy, who led him to Christ? Was the Billy Sunday who started the first evangelism meeting? Was it the next guy who started the evangelism meeting? Was it the parents who'd been working on them? Was it the farmer who drove them? Was it the person he talked to at the meeting? Was it the person who preached? Who led him to Christ? Who cares? It's a relay. We're in a team. It's a team sport. and The question is, what does it look like to be faithful with the people who are right in front of you? Knowing that the next person you lead to Christ might be the next Billy Graham. For all we know, the next Billy Graham is right now drunk. And I know it's the morning time. And I'm saying he's not a Christian. Right now, drunk, not here. For all we know, the next Mother Teresa is one of the most atheist people at your office. For all we know, the next great missionary leader goes to your school. For all we know, the next St. Augustine, the next great leader, the next great evangelist is someone you already know, that you already see. And the question is whether or not you and I will grab this thing And say, I'm going to run as fast and as far as I can with what God has given me. Because I understand this is a team sport, and I'm just going to start talking about Jesus with some of the people in my life. Evangelism is a team sport, friends, and God is doing amazing things in and through you. Would you pray with me?